0: prayer as we apply ourselves to this, uh, these stories. Speak to us, we pray, Heavenly Father. May the voice of Jesus address us from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit through this very ordinary means of preaching and studying together. Address us, we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen you know the story about the ancient Greek king who had been absent in his city for 20 years and returned incognito dressed as a beggar? Now, of course, most people thought that he was dead. Um, the only one well, is not a person who recognised him. The only one who recognised him is his dog. And uh, certainly he's not recognized by his wife who's been longing for his return, nor by the palace full of suitors who have been, well, they've moved into the palace and are competing for Penelope, his wife, and are drinking the absent king's wine and behaving like they're in charge. Well, the king's wife, Penelope, she's convinced that he's alive She doesn't recognize the beggar either, but a competition is proposed. Whoever can string the absent king's bow will marry his wife. And all the suitors line up um, and they all fail. But alas, the beggar takes the bow, strings it with ease, and announces his true identity. Lots of you know who I'm talking about. It's Odysseus, the king, back. Back. Now, for his wife, Penelope, it's absolute, utter, sheer joy. For his old nurse, it's joy. She's longed for his homecoming. But what about those suitors? For them, it's an absolute nightmare as Odysseus, armed with his bow, turns against them. End of the suitors. Return of Odysseus. Well, moving from epic story to real history, we're thinking now about the arrival of Jesus Christ at the temple in Jerusalem, just a few days before he was crucified. We're following the account in the early months of this year uh, from Matthew's gospel, the account of these momentous events. And if you've read Matthew's gospel up to this point, you will have seen countless um, evidences, ways in which Jesus has demonstrated that he is this world's true king. Everything points to the startling truth that this man carries within God's whole being and power and mind and nature. The evidence screams it out. This is the Messiah, the divine human king and savior who had been promised over the centuries through the Old Testament. And we're reading now about what happened when this Messiah arrives as king in his temple, in his city, to meet his Now this event has been prophesied, the arrival of the Messiah in the temple. Take the prophet Malachi, writing about 400 years earlier. Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 prophesies this. It's If you know Handel's Messiah, it's very dramatically set there. Suddenly, the Lord you seek shall come to his temple. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, says Malachi. And that is what we began to witness last week. Andrew, um, our lay reader, preached on Jesus arriving there in the temple and driving out those who were abusing the place. Well, as you can imagine, that incident in the temple does not go unnoticed. Neither did the authorities fail to notice how Jesus had entered the city earlier that day, riding on a donkey, deliberately to fulfill another ancient prophecy of the Messiah coming to his people. Jesus comes on that donkey in gentleness um, and there were many who were overjoyed at his presence. But to some, Jesus' presence is a nightmare. It is to be resisted, just like those suitors resisting the return of Odysseus. See, in particular, those who had been put in charge of running the temple, they are particularly keen, determined to get rid of this Galilean peasant so when he arrives in the temple the following day these leaders are armed with their question look at verse 23 Matthew chapter 21 verse 23 if you follow it along you'll get a lot more out of it I think so Matthew 21 verse 23 Jesus they've got the question lined up Jesus enters the temple courts and while he was teaching the chief priests the elders of the people came to him by what authority are you doing these things, they ask, and who gave you this authority? Now, they base their, their thinking is basically, we're the ones with the authority in this temple, and we certainly haven't authorized you to do the things you're doing. So who do you think you are? How dare you act like this? There's an outrage behind their question. Uh, by what authority do you do these things? Now, you would think... Given that the whole, um, uh, the armies there, or or the armies, the the, the leaders, the rulers of of Israel are against him, um, you would think that Jesus is the one under pressure. But he is about to give us another reason to believe that he is Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord in his temple. Just watch how he answers these men over the next, we'll see it over the next few weeks actually, today as well. Like those Suitors in in Odysseus's palace. These rulers of the temple are about to be. They're about to be taken down in a series of. Well, put it this way I just wish that if I was ever interviewed on the Today program on the radio, I could answer questions like Jesus can. (laughs) Extraordinary. Well, there are three sections in our reading today, um, and I've got a heading for each one of them as we watch. The Lord reclaiming his temple and actually passing judgment on its leaders. So first of all, watch as he unmasks their willful ignorance. Jesus is about to unmask their willful ignorance. So he tells them, he says, so they say, what authority are you doing these things? He says, well, I'll answer your question if you first answer mine. And here's, here's Jesus' question, verse 24. Jesus says to them, John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? Now I'm absolutely rubbish at snooker, but I've watched a lot of snooker in my life. It was my great joy as a a teenager to get home from school, make about four pieces of white toast, slather them in honey and sit in front of my black and white TV in my bedroom watching Steve Davis beat everybody. It was the 80s glorious memories. The amazing thing is you can actually make out the colour of the balls on a black and white TV. But then, anyway, that's a, this is a different thing. But the, one of the best things, one of the satisfying things if you, if you watch snooker is watching someone lay a good snooker. It is just so incredibly satisfying. If you don't know what that is, um, you do really. It's basically when someone plays the white ball behind another ball that you're not allowed to hit. So there's no good path. I mean, that's a perfect snooker there that they've made, absolutely brilliant snooker. If you can lay a perfect snooker, you feel very pleased with yourself. There are no good options. The player takes on unless they're very, very, very good, very clever. They just can't get out of it. Well, Jesus has just spectacularly snookered these opponents. And these leaders of the temple well they are experienced enough at the ancient game not of snooker but the ancient game of power to realize that they are snookered so Jesus says to them John's baptism what did you think about that then he's talking by the way about John the Baptist John the Baptist had preached just before Jesus came onto the scene John was like the warm-up act for Jesus and John called the people of Israel to repent to turn away from their own ways and to live God's way. And thousands had responded to John's preaching. But the authorities didn't. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that suggests that far from it, they actually despised John and looked down on him. So back to Jesus' question. Jesus gives these leaders two options. He says, Is it, where's John's baptism from? Was it from heaven or from, from, uh, from, from men, from human beings? So either... Here are their options. Either they say, John's baptism and message were from God in heaven. They can say that. Or they can say, John just made a message out of his own. It's just a human message. But the thing is, both of those options are very, very bad for them. Because if they say, oh, well, John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus will ask them why they didn't listen. And they don't want to be exposed as inconsistent. But they're also afraid that if they say, oh John's baptism, it just came from human beings, that they'll lose their support in the eyes of the people who are all convinced that John was a prophet. So that was their choice. What are they going to do? Are they going to appear inconsistent or are they going to appear in, be completely unpopular? To people who love power, that's a bad choice to have to make. They don't want either. So they sort of sheepishly say, and I'd love to have heard the tone of voice, we don't know. We don't know. But the fascinating thing is, do you notice this about them? There is no place in their reasoning for the vital question of what is actually true about John. That doesn't even enter their heads. That is irrelevant in their thinking. What is actually true? Their whole approach is governed not by John of what is true, but by a determination to keep their own power intact. They have shut their minds, in other words, to questions about what is true. They have chosen to be ignorant about John. And so Jesus says, Well, I'm not going to waste my brain telling you about myself. What's the point? You're willfully ignorant about John and you will be willfully ignorant about me as well. They're not interested to know what Jesus has to say about his own authority, and that's what Jesus has unmasked, um, as he now gives them here, no direct answer at all. So he unmasks their, their willing uh, ignorance. But then Jesus has got more to say to them as he goes on. Second, he exposes their self-destructive stubbornness. And he does that in the first of three parables, picture stories, as, he, as Jesus sort of takes the floor and starts to, to, to issue his judgment against them. Um, the third of those parables, I'll have to wait for a couple of weeks. But we'll think about the first two of these parables today as he confronts them. And in the first, it's the parable of the two sons. What he does is he really, he exposes their self-destructive stubbornness. So the story is two sons of a vineyard owner, the father says to them both, "Off oh, you, can you please go out and work in the vineyard?" Um, one says, "No." The other says, "Yes." But the one who says "No" changes his mind later and heads out to work. Meanwhile, the one who says yes never shows up." And then Jesus says to the leaders, "Reflect on the story, will you, please?" He asks them to, to consider it. Verse 31. He says, "Which of the two sons did what the father wanted?" And they give the right answer. The right answer is obvious, they, they, even though they, uh, they know, I think, they probably sense, Jesus is about to turn the answer against them. They give it. Um, we can all see, just like they can, that the first son might not have said the right thing to start with, but in the end, he did the right thing. He did what his father wanted. Whereas the, all the right words that the second son said, didn't make up for the fact that he didn't do it. Which one did the will of the Father? Well, the first one. And Jesus does not leave his listeners uh, to guess at who he is referring to. Look at verses 31 and 32. And they're devastating. He says to them, Look, this, is what I'm going, this is what I'm getting at. He says to these leaders, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. Tax collectors and prostitutes. They are the very ones who these religious leaders loved to look down on. And of course they were the people who in a sense they started off by saying no to the ways of God. No, we're going to live our own way, do our own thing against your law. But then when John arrives and calls them to repent, their no is turned into a yes they leave their sinful lives in repentance, and they enter the kingdom of God. But the religious leaders, so different. They know all the right words, and they look like they're God's people. It looks like it's about to be, yes, 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 God, yes, Lord, yes, yes, yes. But then when John comes, they refuse to repent. And as a result, says Jesus, you are on a trajectory. You are heading towards exclusion from the kingdom of God. Your stubbornness, in other words, your refusal to repent, is destroying you. See, having refused to repent when they heard John, they're set on a path that leads to what Jesus describes in the next parable that we're about to look at, the parable of the tenants. So, with that question, Jesus unmasks their willful ignorance. With that first parable here, we've seen he exposes their Self-destructive stubbornness. And now, third, he announces their imminent removal. Their imminent removal from their precious positions of power. So it's another parable, very well-known parable. Tenants in a well-appointed vineyard, and the owner sends the tenants at harvest time to collect some fruit, um, but the tenants abuse them. If you did that to your landlord, if you've got one... um, They wouldn't send another load round. They'd send round the (laughs) law enforcement and you'd be done over pretty quickly. But this is a very patient owner. So he sends another set of servants and they do exactly the same again. And then last he sends his son. But far from respecting the owner's son, the tenant's eyes flash with murder. Verse 38, look, it's chilling. They say, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Well, it's madness, it's a kind of legal madness because you don't gain the inheritance by killing the heir. That That doesn't work like that. But the tenant's agenda is now out there. Basically, they don't want to be tenants. They want to own the vineyard. And that's why they take the owner's son out of the vineyard and they kill him. And so Jesus says, reflect again, Religious leaders, he says to them, reflect on this story. Verse 40, he asks them a question for them to consider. He says, What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? And again, they give the answer. And in giving the answer to Jesus' question, these leaders are announcing their own future. Verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. It must have been awkward for them to say those words because they know full well who they are in the story. They're the tenants. Of course, Jesus is also telling them by what authority he's acting. He is answering their question. What is his authority? Well, he's the son of the vineyard owner. The vineyard being a picture of God's people, Israel. It's an ancient um, uh, metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament. See, Jesus is explaining everything here. He tells them that they will kill him. He tells them why they will kill him. That they want to own Israel, they want Jerusalem, they want the temple for themselves, they want to boot God out of the picture. And Jesus also tells them about the future And if they understood it, I don't know if they did, if they did, it ought to have shaken them to the very core. Um, Basically, the future is that the Son is coming back. And that's what Jesus is telling them in verse 42. Have a look at verse 42 because it's a riddle. It's a quotation from one of the Psalms, Psalm 118, and uh, it's one that it's worth knowing from memory and reflecting on. Start at verse 42. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. How do we solve the riddle? Well, let me ask this question: How does a dead rejected stone? Become, which is Jesus, how does a dead rejected stone become the most important stone in the building? Answer, he needs to be lifted up from the skip where that rejected breeze block has been thrown, lifted up and placed in the place of most structural significance in a new building. What's Jesus predicting here? Predicting his own resurrection from the dead, the stone you builders will reject will become the capstone. That is what the Lord is going to do. So, you know, if if we love the stone, you do you love this Jesus. If you love the stone, this is very wonderful news. That if we love the stone, we. Uh, We actually become part of the new building of which he is the capstone, part of the new people of Jesus. But, of course, it's not so marvelous for those who, like these leaders here, refuse him. To them, the resurrection, the return of the son, should strike terror. Well, the owner has now raised the son. He has lifted up this stone and the reality is, Jesus predicts it here, that these leaders will either be bro- they can't avoid the stone, they will either be crushed by it, broken on it, or crushed by it. It's very, very sober, very sobering. So Jesus, he unmasks their willful ignorance, he explains their, um, their, their, their self-destructive stubbornness, and he announces their imminent removal. Now, we might feel, oh, this is interesting. Look, we've got a ringside seat as Jesus comes. It's like, you know, this is this is spectator sport, watching Jesus take all these people, um, they pronounce judgment here. And it is a unique event. Of course it is. It's once for all that happens. Jesus returning to Jerusalem, the Messiah of Israel coming. But... What happens here um, plays out really every time Jesus confronts human beings. That what happens when Jesus comes into to Israel is just a, is, is kind of the picture, the classic picture of what happens again and again and again when Jesus encounters the human heart. And so we hear his message. This morning, even when we hear his message, the rightful Lord of our lives is addressing us, and he is requiring of us too an answer to that question: Jesus' authority—where is it from? From heaven, or is it just a human construct? What do you think? what's, What's going on in my heart and in your heart? Do you open up for him? Or is there a willful stubbornness that puts down the barrier? Maybe interested desperately in trying to keep your own status quo in your own authority. See, just like when Odysseus arrives in that story, just like when Jesus came to Jerusalem in history, so now it can be very inconvenient for those who are very heavily invested in their own status quo To let Jesus in. I'm fine as I am, they think. So I'm going to live life on my own terms. I'll think what I'll want to think. I'll do what I want to do. That's up to me. And as a result, when Jesus' message comes along, they're closed even to the possibility that it's true because they've got no intention of believing and turning their lives to him. As the religious leaders show, though, that puts us on a collision course with Jesus. So it is very sobering, and it's worth asking our own hearts. Jesus, I think, is asking each of us today: What are, what are you doing with this? But of course, there is the other side to it as well, which is that Jesus did not come to collide with us. He will collide with us if we will stand in stand in his way. But he did not come for that purpose. How did he arrive in Jerusalem? He came on a donkey in gentleness. He didn't come to front up with us. He came to stand alongside us and rescue us and bless us to all who are willing to listen to him, trust him, and obey him. And sometimes, you know, the people who will do that the most joyfully are the last people you would expect, like those tax collectors and prostitutes who repent when John preached and suddenly think, wonderful, I can have God. I can have Jesus. He loves me letting Jesus into our lives. It involves, for everybody, whether this is something you've thought about before or not, it involves stepping out of the control center and letting him take over. And it doesn't just happen once, by the way, as those of us who've been in this (laughs) know very well. It's again and again and again a decision needs to be made. He belongs at the helm of you and of me and of this church as a whole, just as he belonged at the helm of that temple. So step aside, step aside and let the king come and rule as we pray. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. We pray that he would be addressing us as we reflect on these things. We pray that You would not let our hearts hold out against him as those leaders did, but rather welcome him. We pray that you will accomplish this in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, all for Jesus' glory.